Okay, well, good morning. Um, my name is Justin Fleming. I'm a, a member uh, servant here. Uh, this is my turn to preach this week, and we're going to start out um, in the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind opening it to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen behind me. There we go. Great. So, let's, uh, let's read this together, starting in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. All right, so, for those of you who have been with us, you know that we're in this sermon series called Reclaim the Wonder, right? So, we have been going through every book of the Bible, starting from the beginning all the way to the very end, looking into God's texts, trying to understand more about God, trying to learn more about the heart of God. These texts have illustrated his amazing qualities, ranging from his truths, his rightful righteousness, his laws, his precepts, his strengths, and lastly, his great love for us, all the way from the beginning of the dawn of, the dawn of time, to the future end state of man, which will be the end of time. The goal of this series has been to illustrate to you how incredible God is, right? That when you, when you read this text, you're not just seeing like words on a page. It isn't someone just speaking into you. That you are truthfully in awe of him. That you are reclaiming the wonder of who God is. You stand and are amazed in purely that. Today's talk is a, a continuation of that. It's succinctly titled, Press On, just like how we uh, uh, just read back in Philippians 3. To, to start this talk, I want to do uh, a little backtracking. Uh, up to now, we've had two talks about this guy named Paul, right? Uh, we've had his first talk was on when he was converted on the Damascus Road, right? And the second talk is the book he wrote called the Book of Romans, which is an amazingly powerful book. The sermon was amazingly powerful. I hope that you've had the time to go back and read all the way through that. Uh, today's sermon, though, is on the Pauline prison letters. Uh, Paul uh, wrote four different letters to different churches throughout Eurasia, um, that either he visited or he knew about or he was ministering to, whatever. And the, the name of the four books that he wrote is Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. In today's talk, we're going to kind of dive into uh, a few of those books, and we're kind of going to weave the message of all of them throughout all of them. So at the end of this, we're not just uh, boring you with reading a whole bunch of uh, Scripture, although I should say that Scripture is definitely not boring. Uh, so this question of who is Paul, we've talked about him a little bit two weeks ago when we talked about his conversion, but what, 
if, if, um, if we don't talk about who Paul was prior to that point of conversion, then we're kind of missing the point of how great his story is. So that's how I'm going to begin today, by talking specifically who he is. Um, there's no better way to tell you who Paul is than through his own words. So I'm going to uh, start in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 through 6, and I'll just read it for you here. For it is we who are of the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put on confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here he starts laying out who he is. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the people of Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's considered a Hebrew of Hebrew in regard to the law, that is, the law, the, he, the, the uh, law prior to Jesus showing up. He was considered a Pharisee. As for zeal, he persecuted the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, he was completely faultless. So when you read that, you should, you should realize this. Like, if you were growing up around town, and you had some other friends that maybe were in your same class or whatnot, and you went over to little Johnny's house, and you showed up at Johnny's house, and his parents had, like, his refrigerator full with, like, his report cards and his art and all that stuff. He's that kid. He, Paul was the guy that got, like, the gold star on every homework assignment. He did everything right. He was like the poster child Hebrew of Hebrews. And when I read this part, when I was preparing for this sermon, I kind of realized that like I'm the complete opposite of that, right? And maybe many of you are too. Uh, Who in here remembers Venn diagrams from school? Yeah, well, okay, you kids that are still in school, that's not fair, but everybody else. uh, In comparing myself to Paul, I I actually put together a Venn diagram and I I brought it here for you today. So, let's look at these together. <clears throat> I wanted to uh, comment, everything that I listed here about Paul is specifically what I just read to you out of Philippians, so I'm not making anything up, I'm actually using the own text there. So, Paul was an Israelite of Israelites. If you compare that to me, I'm definitely not an Israelite, not in any level, right? He was of the tribe of Benjamin. If I'm lucky... I might be able to tell you my lineage back to my great-grandfather. I actually personally knew him. Um, I was very blessed in that regard. But beyond that, I don't know what tribe I came from. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee. What's a, what's a Pharisee? I don't, I don't even know. Um, Paul was a zealot against the church. At, at the time, I, I didn't want to be a zealot of the church, against the church, didn't know anything about the church. And Paul was blameless under the law. Justin, I didn't have any knowledge of the law whatsoever. So if you look at Paul over here, by most standards back then and even today, you would consider Paul to be a good guy. He would be a good person. Not only did he have all these awesome characteristics about him, uh, on the whole, as society goes, he would be considered good. Then you look at Justin over here on the other side. Justin's what you call a jag. Justin's just a guy. He's... He's nobody special whatsoever, right? I mean, my folks are some of the finest people in the world, but we are not of the finest breed. I can tell you that. Where Paul was, you know, I was, I was, you know, somewhat educated where he went to the finest schools and everything else. Remember that whole refrigerator joke I came up with? My folks would have never hung any of my stuff up there. Who wants to celebrate mediocrity? I, I don't get it. Anyway, but what's, what's the same 
about both of these people. I would say that the same about both of us is that we're both spiritually dead aside from Christ, right? Right? So you got Paul, by all considerations, a really good guy. You got Justin, by all considerations, not such a great guy. Both of us, prior to our Damascus Road event, spiritually dead, dead aside from Christ. So what happens? Paul, uh, in, this, in this zealot against the church, in this persecution against the church, goes out and he's on this Damascus Road. And he's, he's heading up to Damascus to go persecute more of the church. And he has this event, if you remember, where he was converted, right? In this conversion, God ministers to Paul directly. And he gives him a mission to take the gospel to the world, in particular, the Gentile world. So Paul starts going all over creation as much as he can, preaching the gospel, right? Um, he has this amazing mission where he, he's, you know, traveling by foot and by donkey to all these different places, preaching the word of God. And doing so, man, he's, uh, he's jailed, right? So he actually did some things that were anti-culture, anti-law, etc., etc., and he's imprisoned because of it. Uh, while he's in prison... Uh, he writes these letters that we're going to get into today. But the reason I wanted to talk about this background on Paul, it, it illustrates the text that we opened up with today. If you think about that, Paul was in jail, right? And he was still preaching God's glory. He was still ministering to people while he's locked up in chains. That's pretty incredible. So even still, today, his word is glorifying God some 2,000 years later, Right? because he pressed on into the ever-surpassing glory of God. Okay, so let's talk about the, uh, the actual letters. I'm going to start in Colossians, and I'm going to kind of bounce around to all of them. So if you want, you can open up your Bible to uh, Colossians chapter 1. The text isn't going to be on the screen, just kind of the main highlight of what I'm going to bring up here. The book of Colossians was written by Paul to the Colossian church, right? Uh, Paul had ever had never actually uh, visited this place, but he had known about them through some disciples of his. And uh, in this region, the Christian theology had begun beginning infected by this stuff called Gnosticism, specifically a, sp- a specific train of Gnosticism called Judaic Gnosticism. And what that is is basically like, yeah, you can achieve Christ, this idea of Gnosticism. You can achieve uh, God and, and being in communion with God, but to do so, you have to have this like secret knowledge, right? So Paul writes this whole letter combating that entirely, and I could spend like six more sermons just talking about that point in and of itself. But that's the whole basis of of, uh, of Colossians, and and what what Paul beautifully does throughout the entire book is he weaves Christ's preeminence through all of it. And, and Colossians is just this beautiful tapestry of specifically this idea. So here in Colossians 1, 21 through 23, he says this. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of an evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, Established and firm, and do not move from the gospel 
This is the gospel that you have heard, and it has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul encourages this, this people of Colossians to keep Christ preeminent in all things, and he goes on to explain that your lives should reflect that preeminence. Just before that part we just read, here's another verse starting in 15 through 20. He says, he is the son of the... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in all things hold together in him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything we might have his supremacy. For God was pleased to have the fullness to dwell in him, and, though, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I want to I take a moment to like, dive into this idea on how incredible God is and talking about all this stuff that was created. When I read that text in and of itself, I, I personally stand back and, and am awe. And I'm going to show you why in just a second. When you think about all things, all things that were created, right? They're being created through him and for him. Things on the earth, above the earth, the stars, the sun, keep going, keep going. All things, right? Um, what's, what's really cool is all of these things that were created had to be created for us to even exist. And uh, I'm going I'm to talk to you now a little bit about how incredible God is. But I want to talk a little bit about all these numbers that are up here. So of all the different things that had to be created such that life would even have a chance to exist, this is, this is mind-blowing, and when you realize this, you will be in awe of God. Now, I'm going to take some liberties here um, in, in walking through this. First off, let me just say this for any of you science folks. Um, I'm, I'm making an assumption of a 300-molecule probiotic chain, and uh, that's the first step that's in going into all the rest of this. There are 322 parameters that are needed for life to exist. That's a very liberal uh, estimation, if you will. And what are these parameters? There are some things that are, you know, very simple. If you think about them, this is, uh, mind you, this is just for life to exist, right? Uh, if you think about, like, a carbon-rich environment oxygen, right? These are like some of the simple things. Uh, the Earth's rotation, its relative distance to the, Earth, uh, to the sun, right? These are, these are some simple things. If you kind of get a little bit more deep, like you think about a multi-tiered atmosphere, right, that allows us to breathe and exist and not burn up by the sun. Or if you want to go super deep, one of these parameters is the proximity of a solar nebula to a type to supernova event. Anyway, you know, whatever. So, so there are 322 different probabilities that are, I mean, uh, excuse me, 322 different parameters needed for life to exist. If you take the probability of each one of those things randomly occurring in the world and you summize all of those probabilities, the probabilities of all of those 322 events actually occurring such that you can be sitting in this chair today is... 1 in 10 times 10 to the negative 388. Sorry, that's engineering notation. I I should have written that out. So the the probability of all of those things occurring, such as you can be here, 
is one in that many number. If you consider all the bodies, the celestial bodies that exist inside of the known universe, that number is about 10 to the 22, right? That's a lot. That's a whole lot. So then if you take the summation of all those probabilities into the probability of all those probabilities occurring inside one celestial body in the earth, the probability of us existing is one in one million trillion 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 I think I counted them all right. I may have been wrong. Think of that. Think about all of that stuff that has to occur for you to be here today. God created all of that stuff. All of that stuff happened such that you can sit here and listen to me bore you to death. Isn't that incredible? Not me boring you, but all of that, that's amazing. There's only 10 to the 80 celestial entities in the entire world. So all of the atoms and molecules and, and, and into the entire universe. So thinking about God creating all of these things such that we even get a shot at existing should make you stand in awe. And this simple illustration, which trust me is, is pretty simple, isn't nearly as incredible as the fact that he chose you. Or me. Out of all the things he created, just for us to even have a chance, all of the amazing things that he's done, and I'm, I'm talking about all the like really boring science things. Think about the stars and all that other stuff. The most awe-inspiring, wonder-filled, jaw-dropping, amazing thing that God has done is he chose you. That point moves us back into the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible, if you'd like to open it to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. So he chose you, and in doing so, he reconciled himself, he reconciled you back to himself to the point of dying on a cross for you, right? So let's, let's read here in Philippians Chapter 2, starting on verse 5. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of even death on a cross. So the book of Philippians was written to the people of Philippi, right? To thank them for their continued love and support of Paul, even while he's in, in uh, prison. But he also encourages them on to Christ, yeah? And he tells them that a Christian should live a life of servitude and humility, much like our model, Christ. These themes run through the entire letter. And I want to um, take a few steps back, and I, I want to think a, again about the fact that Paul's locked up when he's writing this, right? Paul's locked away somewhere in Rome, some stinky, dungeon, rat-infested, crowded jail, chained to the wall like an animal, still preaching the goodness of Christ and encouraging others that he can't see or smell or hug or kiss on their cheek. He's still telling them to push on. So these... these uh, 
these ideas should maybe start, kind of start building the message that I'm trying to get across here. Look in Philippians 3, verses uh, 7 through 11. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but from faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participating in his sufferings, becoming like him to his death, and so somehow obtaining the resurrection of Christ. Think about this guy sitting in jail in that terrible event, a terrible situation I just told you about, and he's still telling you to press on. When, when you think about where you are today, I wonder if you could do the same. Right? Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of becoming content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This might be a part where I actually, like, start kind of preaching, and I'm going to try to restrain it a little bit. Um, uh, No matter where you are in this life, no matter where you are, let's say that you're homeless, I'm going to encourage you to press on. No matter if you're broke, I'm going to encourage you to press on. No matter if you're incredibly rich, I'm going to encourage you to press on. No matter if you're heartbroken, if you're downtrodden, I'm going to encourage you to press on. Maybe you have something in your life, like you're addicted to too much drink, I'm going to encourage you to press on. Maybe you're addicted to drugs. I'm going to encourage you to press on. Maybe you have some secret sin in your life that you don't want me to talk about. I'm going to encourage you to press on. I'm going to encourage you to deal with these things in the power of Jesus Christ. I'm going to encourage you to break these chains of oppression in your life and take them on head to head. I'm going to encourage you that maybe you have something you can't deal with on your own. Maybe you're battling depression. These are real things that need to be dealt with. And maybe you need to come get someone like me or or John or anybody in this place and get them to get down in the muck and the mire with you and take these things on. You have to look these things in the eye and call them out by name and stand and fight no matter what the condition is. You need to press on to the upward call of God because he is worthy and he is so much greater than anything that we could be on our own. And that moves us into the last book I'm going to talk about today today, called Ephesians. If you have your Bible, again, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians is a wonderful, wonderful text. Ephesians defines who we are as Christians. And in the latter half of the book, it talks about who who we are and what we do, right? So we are his, yeah? And we are children of God. We just sang a song about it. Look here in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now in work in those who are disobedient, all of those who lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following the desires and thoughts. 
Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In the book of Galatians, which is another book that Paul wrote, he wonderfully and beautifully illustrates this point far greater than I ever could. That because of what Christ has done for us, we are heirs and therefore children of God. So no matter your earthly condition, right, of any of those previous conditions I listed, your real condition is that you are a child of God. Because you are a child of God, you continually press on. You deal with these chains of oppression or whatever that might be holding you down that I just talked about. You come get somebody to stand in the gap and fight with you, and you press on. No matter your earthly condition, you are a real child of God. You are also Christ's workmanship. In Ephesians 4, through 24 he says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, to put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So friend, if you are his, and if you've been called to his purpose, you press on. It doesn't matter who you once were. It doesn't matter what your previous condition is. It matters who you are today. You are a child of God. You are worthy of his call. You have been called into his kingdom. And because you are worthy, you press on. So in closing, I want to kind of bring this back full circle. Paul was brought very, very low in this life after his conversion into Christ. He suffered much for the name of Christ. If you think about it and if you read much of Acts, you see that he suffered humiliation, abandonment, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was snake-bitten, and he was imprisoned, chained like an animal to a wall in some filthy, disgusting, wet, whatever you want to describe, disgusting Roman jail for years. This wasn't like a two-week thing where he had this little event. For years he suffered in this condition. But he considered all of that and the former person of who he was nothing because he was pressing on to the upward call of Christ. Because Christ is so much more worthy. He's so much greater. He's so much higher than our present condition that Paul pressed on and he encouraged us to do the same. Paul went on to be arguably one of the most influential Christians in history, impacting lives through glorifying Christ back then all the way to today's talk. So I want to end today's talk with uh, Paul's own words. If you remember how we started, it's Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to the upward call of God in Christ. Let's pray.
Lord, you are so much higher, so much greater, so much grander than anything that this life can throw at us. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that's struggling with depression or alcoholism or addicted to pornography or addicted to anything that you don't want them to be, that is tied down by any chains of oppressions, I want to pray that you break them in the power of your name. That if there's anyone here that needs someone to be there with them, that needs someone to stand in the gap, to take these things on and look them in the eye and call them out by name and fight them with them. Father, let those people come forward and let your servants rise up to be there. God, thank you for this text. Thank you for the heart and the determination of Paul who, even in the midst of the worst condition, still pressed on and is still impacting lives today. God, it's in your amazing and holy and powerful name that I pray these things and give all this glory to you. Amen.